0: All right, good morning, Jacob's Well. Uh, my name is Tyler Stowell. I'm on the discipleship Every time, the voice thundered. Right there, every time. Uh, I'm on whatever teams I'm on, whatever I was saying. Uh, discipleship teams, teaching teams. Um, this, uh, this is a, our last Sunday in the book of John, at least for right now, before we kind of shift gears for the summer, which means next Sunday, new bump video. Always exciting. To see, We've kind of mellowed out a little bit with the bump video, um, but we're journeying into the Psalms for the summer, and that's kind of like the song music book, you know, so I don't know, I feel excited to see what bump video, and now I'm probably putting pressure on whoever's supposed to create the bump video, so, but you shouldn't have a lot going on this week, you know, with Well Kids Camp and stuff. Uh, yeah, th- this is the end of, as I look at the book of John, we're, we're in the end of chapter 12, which is kind of the end of act one. If John is split up into two acts, um, the first 12 chapters have taken three years, and the last uh, eight or nine or ten chapters are going to take like two weeks uh, in terms of the the amount of uh, time span that John is covering. This is kind of the end. So this is like the summary of everything we've talked about thus far in John. I don't expect you to remember all of that as we've journeyed through this last several months. We'll just trust the Holy Spirit to bring that to mind. But think of some of the themes that have been throughout here. I want you to, as we walk through this passage to think of the things that John has been trying to bring to us about Jesus, things like light. We see that even in this in this passage. Things like light and darkness. Jesus is the light. This kind of harkens all the way back to John 1, where he's writing about the word and in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Eternal life, that's another theme. Jesus as the sent one. He's referred to the Father as the one who sent me more than any other way that he's talked about the Father. And then, the ways that people respond. That's been a clear theme. John kind of presents, hey, here's who Jesus is, here's what he does, and then we see different reactions. People either believe, or they reject him. So look for those responses even in this passage. And then at the end of that, uh, what kind of fruit does that ultimately bring in someone's life? What kind of fruit does choosing to believe or not believe in Jesus? Fruit takes a long time to grow. Uh, and any, do we have, how many gardeners do we have in here? Like vegetable food gardeners. Okay, not many of us, but there's some. Uh, This is like a really weird, funky growing season this year. Like the weather's just been really weird and our garden is like, I don't know, a little disappointing, but it takes a long time for a fruit to grow, uh, both in the actual ground and in the the soil of our our hearts and souls. And maybe, uh, I don't know where some of you are at, I don't know where everybody's at, but maybe you've been really trying to grow and you're trusting God for some fruit in your life and you just, you can't get over that one struggle. Maybe you've been trusting God for, for growth in someone else's life, a family member, your kids, a, a co-worker's life, and it's just like, it just feels like you're, you're digging into rocks, trying to trust God to do something in someone else's life. Uh, maybe it just feels like life just kind of keeps pouring down on you. Um, maybe it's just a slow trickle, a waterboard kind of thing that just, like, Lord, what in the world? Or maybe out of nowhere, there just was a downpour in your life, and it, and it just doesn't feel like there's ever going to be any reprieve. God does promise to bring fruit somehow, but sometimes it just takes a really long time. And this brought to mind uh, a poem. I don't read poetry unless it's quoted in another book, but I came across this poem that I thought was really apt for, for this morning by a, a, I don't know, what do you call a, po- a poetist, an author, um, a poet. Uh, there it is. There it is. This is what this poet wrote. She said, Planting seeds inevitably changes how I feel about rain. Planting seeds inevitably changes how I feel about rain. And so maybe, maybe you do feel like you're in a downpour, and I don't want to just minimize that by, oh, it's fine, the water helps it grow. But there is something about putting seeds into the ground that changes how we feel about rain. And I think there's some spiritual connections that are even made in this passage here, as we'll see in just a few minutes. So let's, let's jump in. Verse 20, in this kind of first chunk here, where, where Jalen left us off last week was the Pharisees and the Jews and the religious leaders were kind of all huffing and puffing because they were feeling jealous and the world was going after him and they weren't believing in Jesus. And then immediately we see these Greeks representing that whole rest of the world come to Jesus and say, okay, uh, we want to we see Jesus. So the, these Greeks come along and they stand in a very stark contrast to the Pharisees that were just uh, huffing and puffing and saying, what, what in the world? Who are exasperated by Jesus' growing influence. They're not necessarily from Greece, the, the, the nation, the country. Um, they're just referring to Gentiles who come from any part of, part of the Greek-speaking world, even as near as the city of Decapolis, which um, I don't have a map to show you. Uh, there might be one in the, in the back of your Bible, but uh, the Sea of Galilee, kind of the area where Jesus does a lot of ministry between there and Jerusalem, on the northeast side of that was the city of the Decapolis. There's even a couple of stories in the Gospels that take place there. And we see that Philip from Bethsaida in Galilee was around that part of, on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And there was a, a heavy Greek-speaking population there, which even makes sense why they might come to, to Philip. Philip kind of seems like this, this uh, global Gentile missionary early on, uh, he was Jewish, but he had the most Greek-speaking name. Even Andrew and Philip both had the kind of Greek-speaking names, which is maybe why they attracted some Greeks to them. Uh, representation, crossing, crossing cultures matters deeply. We, I don't know if these Greeks would have come uh, to, to find out more about Jesus or not. Maybe they wouldn't have felt comfortable. But Philip was there, and like, hey, he's kind of from where we're from. He's got a Greek-sounding name. Let's, let's do business. Let's ask some questions. We find out that they were, they were God-fearing, so they were, they were ones that were coming to worship in Jerusalem, and they were looking for some common ground, but they keep hearing about this Jesus guy. And what a, what a great, I mean, isn't this what we all ultimately long for? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Like, that's what, at the heart, what we all really want in life, I think, and what we want for those that are not yet connected to Jesus that we are connected with. But they come, they come to Philip, as outsiders in a sense, even though, again, they've chosen to try to worship, but th- there still was the sense of being an outsider. And yet this is fulfilling what God started way back when, this whole kind of Jews and Greeks thing. Go back to Genesis 12 there. This is you know, not long after the beginning. Right? God created everything, Adam and Eve, they broke it all. You know, A bunch of other stuff happens. And God's trying to put together a, a rescue plan. redemption plan, and he's going to do it through a family. And so he comes to Abraham, whose name at this point was still Abram, and he says to him, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation and bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the very, very beginning, God's desire was that the nations of the world would come to him. And he was going to do that through a specific people, the Jewish people, starting with Abraham here. But it was never just a Jewish thing. It was always meant to be worldwide. And yet the Pharisees missed it. The other religious leaders that were Jewish totally missed it. And yet here these Greeks are coming to Jesus in fulfillment of this. And that's not even the first time, of course, that Jesus crosses some boundaries. But it is one of the first that we see in John where this is being fulfilled from way back when. Go, go back to John 12. We're going to be jumping back and forth, too, so if you have an actual physical Bible in front of you, that would be really helpful, because we're going to be all over. So it's interesting, Jesus' response in John 12, um, all, throughout, all throughout John, he, he keeps kind of evading the people as they try to take him and make him their king, or take him and throw him off a cliff. Throughout the Gospels, there's kind of these moments where um, Jesus, the, the rest of the people, are beckoning him to do their bidding, and it often says, the hour has not yet come. Or he will say, my hour has not yet come. I think he even said that to his mom one time at his first miracle back in John 2. She was like, hey, make, you know, make some more wine for us. And he's like, woman, my hour has not yet come. There's more endearing respect in that term woman there. But, but he uses that phrase a lot, my hour is not yet And then all of a sudden, these Greeks come to him and it's almost like a signal that, oh, it, the hour has come. Here we go. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is is that hour to be glorified? We know, because we have the whole story, that this means for Jesus to be crucified, which is a giant paradox. In in John's Gospel, Jesus' glorification is primarily seen through his crucifixion. And yet, if we were to jump back into that moment, that would seem like crazy. But because we have the whole story, Is there any other event in history that has brought God more glory than the death of his own son? Like, that's a wild statement. That's a wild, wild statement. And yet, Jesus almost points it out to us in the next verse. Go down to 24 there. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. I mean, this is the point that Jesus is making here, even by the fact that the cross is what brings him the most glory. What's interesting is he says in 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Throughout the Gospels, the Son of Man was often used either in connection with Jesus' suffering, or in connection to his glory. And here they are put together, that, that the Son of Man is going to receive the most glory because of his suffering. And Jesus clues us in to just uh, evidence throughout nature of grain, a grain of wheat falling to the earth and dying, a seed having to be planted in the ground so that it could bear fruit. We would say at the, at the first glance that the cross is full of shame and the glory comes ultimately from the resurrection, which, okay, sure, that, that brings a lot of glory too. That was pretty fascinating that Jesus came back. But his glory is already fully displayed in the shame of the cross. And so Jesus models for us these, these rhythms of life and death that happen in certainly the grandest sense that one day we will die physically and those of us in Christ will be united with him forever in glory. And yet there are these shorter-term rhythms of death and life that happen, of cross and resurrection that happen in our lives on earth. And those things are really, really hard. I was talking with Pastor Scott earlier this week, and we were just, yeah, talking about life, talking about why does life often feel like death? Why are things just so hard? Why do certain, certain uh, sufferings, certain struggles, certain weaknesses seem like they fit into kind of a category of, oh, here's what God's doing in my life. He, he, he's He's sanctifying me in some certain way, making me more like him, helping me love other people well. And then there's another category where it's just like it doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. It just feels like death over and over and over again, whether it actually involves a, a physical death of a family member or not. Why is it like that? Why is some weakness and suffering not fit into any of our categories? We had a discipleship course on that last, uh, this past spring on suffering. There's not a great answer all the time. There's just not. Sometimes, in some way, God knows what he's doing and we don't. And it's, it's maddening. I talked about this a couple weeks ago with Lazarus. But in some ways, don't, don't hear this the wrong way, in some ways we could say suffering didn't fit great into Jesus' category either. Yes, there's the cross and the resurrection and the grand purposes, but let's, let's still stay in real time with Jesus. In, in a few chapters later on in John, or at least in the other Gospels, he's sweating blood staring down the face of the cross. Like, this wasn't just a, oh, everything's fine, and he has this kind of, yes, he's supernatural, but he never uses that to avoid suffering. Everyone abandoned Jesus in, in his journey to the cross. Or we could argue that he was fruitless, at least until the resurrection. And yet, just like the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 about his, God's grace being sufficient, I have to believe that Jesus trusted that his Father's grace was sufficient for him to sustain him. Paul, Paul writes before that, go to that 2 Corinthians 4 passage. It's just, I don't know, to me this passage just kind of encapsulate, encapsulates what's happening here. The Apostle talks about the struggles of life and ministry and brokenness and he writes it this way, we have this treasure, the gospel message in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed We could say that death was at work in Jesus so that life would be at work in us. And sometimes death is at work in us so that life would be at work all around us in other people, and yet it's still just as really, really hard. There, there is a sense, as we see Jesus perfectly obeying his Father on the way to the cross, again, that wasn't necessarily an easy thing. Jesus was fully divine, sure, so he had a leg up on us in some ways, but he was still fully human faced with every temptation to say no to the Father like we are. And yet he was faithful. But there's a sense that obedience will be really hard at times and might even feel like death as we say no to old ways of living and yes to new ways in Jesus. And yet the hope is that those, those many deaths that happen throughout our lives would actually lead to life. That it would bring about this fruit somewhere deep inside of us that the seeds being sown and pushed deeper into the, the, heart, the dirt of our heart would bear fruit one day. And that we would begin to, as we talk about here, that our taste buds would actually change. We'd begin to want to more and more continue to obey. But sometimes it does just seem like, God, what are you doing? When is the rain going to stop? When is the downpour going to stop? Andrew Peterson, who's an author and, and singer, songwriter, uh, who I've grown to love and enjoy over the last couple years, his, his works. Um, he, he has a beautiful song about the rain that keeps falling. And he writes about a story one time where he just felt like he was kind of at death's doorstep, not necessarily physically, but just emotionally, spiritually. Thought he was kind of done with all the like, hard stuff and was going to just you know, bear all kinds of fruit. And he said, I was crying out to the Lord, almost like, Lord, I need you. The song we just sang. And he's crying out, and he just said it felt like God reached down and just kind of used his thumb to push him farther down into the dirt like a seed. And he just, and that's when he came, he's the one where I got that, that poem from. He came across that poem about how gardening changes the way I feel about rain. And as he even entered into his own journey of, of being a gardener, he recognized when I put a seed down into the earth, it's not because I'm mad at it. It's not because I'm angry. In fact, I'm not even killing it or trying to inflict pain on it. I'm trying to help it grow. And maybe God, has the same, maybe God has the same mindset, the same heart for me when it feels like I'm just being pushed down deeper in the earth. And the fact that Jesus gives us this truth of nature that applies to the spiritual world gives me a lot of hope that I don't have to try to prevent suffering in my own life or in other people's lives, that God truly does work all things together for good, and that he doesn't have to tell me why I necessarily struggle in certain ways. That's really, that's really hard. But we do have to hang on to this back-end hope. So if go back to John 12. If, if it's true that a kernel has to fall to the ground and die and then will bring fruit, like, so what? Then what? Another great... Another great uh, hallmark card to put on your desk. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This really, I mean, this really is. What's interesting is so much of Jesus' teaching, like, he does, he does absolutely say, like, do certain things, don't do other things, but sometimes he also just tells it how it is. Like, he's not actually saying, hey, you should hate your life. Don't love you. He's just saying, "Hey, this is what it is. This is just reality. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. It's up to you what you do with it. If you hate your life in this world, well, then you'll keep it for eternal life. But you get to choose." And the the whole love hate thing. Let's in, in English, let's not get hung up on that, right? This was a this was a Semitic hyperbole kind of thing that they would do in writing to just show a contrast. It's not about having a deep-seated, I hate, I hate my life. It's not that at all, the way that we might use that phrase now. It, are, it articulates a preference and a value system rather than some type of absolute hatred. Dr, uh, Dr. Tony Evans puts it this way, if you live a self-centered existence, you'll lose the very thing you're trying to hold on to. If your life is all about you and finding yourself, you will not find the you that you're looking for a little bit older of a doctor in reverence, St. Augustine says it this way, if you want to keep your soul forever, you have to hate it for a time. And it's just this whole idea of, of an exchange, that I'm going to give up my life and receive the life that God has. There's a death in that. And yet Jesus gives us this amazing promise. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life will lose it, but if you hate your life, you'll keep it for eternal life. Long term, like that's a really good trade. Right here and now, sometimes it feels really hard to let go. And yet it's, it seems like it's when we grasp and try to hold on so tightly to the things of this world, and I don't know what that is for any of you necessarily. You know what that is. Whatever's coming to mind right now, like that's probably what it is. When we grasp so tightly at these things that we think are going to give us life and give us ultimate satisfaction, Like that's when it just seems to slip out of our hands. And it seems like as soon as we let go, just on the other side of that, God peels back an onion layer. It brings about a little, a little shoot, a little bud that just starts to point to some fruit. It's not always like that. I'm not saying that in a formulae kind of way. But as soon as we let go, it seems like that's exactly when we get it. Fascinating uh, little book that I read this week, uh, not by a poetist, but by a whole author, regular author, uh, John Steinbeck. He wrote this little book called The Pearl. And fascinating, fascinating little novel. About a uh, kind of a small fishing town, and these like p- fishermen that were kind of like pearl hunters, and this guy comes upon comes upon like the pearl of the world is what they called it, just like the absolute treasure of treasures, and and everybody was so excited uh, and jealous, and he was like, I'm gonna make all this money, and he starts dreaming about what am I gonna do? What are we gonna do with it? We could do this and this and this, and meanwhile, his his little baby boy is sick, and. And the doctor in the town is, is just totally manipulative and, and kind of claiming, well, it's this, this, and this, and it's going to cost you this much, but I'll just take the pearl instead. And there's all these layers to it of everybody else wanting the pearl for themselves, and, and Kino is the main character's name. And he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do with it? And Steinbeck, just as an author, was, it, was just, it was magnificent the way he wrote this, and he starts to point to what starts to happen inside Kino's heart because of this thing. Right, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you can almost picture the ring and what it does. Uh, in, inside someone. But he had this pearl of, of infinite value, infinite worth. And it ends up costing his son's life because he won't let it go. He gets kind of a low ball price on the pearl. They're going to go somewhere else to try to find a better one. And his wife keeps telling him, can we just throw it back? This thing's destroying us. She sees clearly. Just, it's dest- can we just get rid of it? He's like, no, there's no other way. I have no other choice. We have to take this route. You're going to have to hide or they're going to kill you too. There's no other way. There's no other way. And the whole time I'm thinking, like, there is another way. You just have to let go of it. You just got to throw it back. Give it to someone else. And it ends up costing him his son's life, his little baby boy. And at the very end of the book, they step back to the sea and they launch it back into the water. And I was like, for what? For what? You could have just done that two days ago. And your son would still be alive. As he tried to love this pearl and love his life, he lost it. might we not do the same but the question maybe is what's that what's that pearl in your life what's the thing you're trying to hold on to we do have a great model in Jesus that he didn't hang on to his own life but for our sake he lost it so that we could have eternal life moving on to 27 this is an interesting interesting thing that Jesus says here now is my soul troubled Again, we, we, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus' humanity as he was dealing with Lazarus' death. And we've seen this almost as we've gone through John. I feel like we've started to see more and more and more of Jesus' humanity. Right? As he gets closer and closer to the cross, there, there's, I almost have this assumption that he would be more like, I don't know, more, more at peace, more spiritual. As we grow, that there's almost like this, um, almost like this nirvana that's supposed to happen. And I think in my own life, I've seen, I've recognized that, as, as much as I, many of you know, as much as I love Pete Scazzaro, and I don't have any problems with him at all, as we've tried to incorporate some emotional health and contemplative rhythms, I've almost developed this expectation that that would bring this, like, nirvana-like state in life. And I would just be at peace with, like, anything that goes on. And that's a, like, super Eastern, like, Buddhist mentality, not Jesus. Jesus almost gets more and more troubled, more and more emotive, more and more human as he gets closer and closer to the cross, which would make sense. The cross doesn't seem very inviting. And so he says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So this was kind of a troubling passage at first, because I was like, well, doesn't he say that? Like elsewhere in the gospels, in the garden, isn't he like Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yeah, not as I will as you will, but here he's kind of like, I'm not going to say that. So this was, I, was just, I was confused, and as I was studying and looking at it this week, there was kind of a split, but I, I really lean towards this interpretation of this, as does D.A. Carson, where I got some of this insight from. He views it not, not being a, a rhetorical question of like, am I going to say, Father, save me? But as an actual, like, what, what am I going to say as I stare this down? I'm going to say, Father, save me. That that second question mark there, don't hear me saying we should change scripture. Right? There's all kinds of stuff that can get lost in translation and interpretation, but that second question mark almost doesn't belong. That he's actually saying, this is, gonna, this is, this is hard. This is going to feel like death. Father, would you save me from this hour? To me, that lines up with what he says in the garden a few days after this. To me, it lines up with the the trouble and the weeping that he had over his friend, Lazarus, who died just a few days before this scene, a few weeks maybe. Lines up with his humanity being on full display, which we see. And the kind of whole idea of like, what am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour? No, I won't say that. Like, there's almost just a melodramatic, like inhuman kind of sense to that. This like, Superhero, which like, yes, Jesus was the capital S superhero. Don't hear me saying that. And yet again, he never uses his divinity to escape suffering. If anything, he uses his divinity to come full tilt into suffering. And so I think the, the idea that he would have this kind of super Christian type of faith of like, yes, I, I'm not going to ask to be saved from this hour. Like, I just, don't, I just don't see that in Jesus. I see a full human suffering experience happening here as he's staring down the pipe of the cross. And to me, that gives us great hope that he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to cry out, Father, save me. And yet he recognizes, but for this purpose, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. Father, glorify your name. That's the whole point. That's the whole theme. That God would bring his own name glory by offering salvation to us. And the Son even recognizes, Jesus recognizes that it's the Father who is enabling His ministry. He chooses to submit Himself. Within within the, the wild mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are all equal, who are all equally God, who all play various roles throughout the sustaining of the universe, the Son chooses to submit to the Father. And He recognizes that the Father is the one who is glorifying it. And then we get this voice from heaven, right? Is that, is that where, yeah, 28. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowds are like, I don't, you know, some of them said it's thunder. Some of them says an angel spoke to him. They missed it. Some commentators said that the ones that said it thundered, they were the, the Sadducees that don't believe in kind of anything supernatural. The others that said an angel spoke to him, those are the Pharisees that were kind of the super religious, like, and they both just totally missed it. Those are two Jewish groups and they're missing it. And yet the Greeks are the one coming to Jesus. Jesus answered and responded, verse 30, this voice has, not come, has come for your sake, not mine. Right? He knew who he was. It was the rest of us, the rest of those standing there, the rest of us that need to hear heaven's pronouncement. Perhaps specifically the pronouncement that the cross that was about to come didn't stamp out Jesus as condemned and cursed, but actually proved to be his utmost glorification. And then he he starts to, not that all of this hasn't been good news, but he starts to give us some good news here. Now is the judgment of this world. The ruler of the earth will be cast out. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. Yes, he's talking about his death. We see John's commentary there. But this this is some victory stuff that now he's starting to talk about. Hey, the the judgment of this world, which, again, a little bit of bad news, that kind of involves all of us. And as the world thought they were passing judgment on Jesus, really, Jesus on the cross was passing judgment on them and on the rest of us. But then the ruler of the world will be cast out. This is good news. That the ruler of the world, the devil, Satan, will be cast out, thrown out from over us. Doesn't mean thrown totally out of creation and of our lives, but he's no longer dominating over us. I loved how one commentator put it. It's it's sufficient to know the devil is no longer over Jesus' disciples, us included, but he is under them. Still tempting them from below, I feel that, but no longer dominating them from above. As Jesus was lifted up, Satan was thrown down. That's really good news. Still a hard experience in life, but it's really good news. And then that he would draw all people to himself, not in a universalist, everybody-saved kind of way, but in a, in a Philippians 2, 10 and 11 kind of way, that one day there will be a, a reckoning, there will be a recognition, go to that Philippians 2 passage, Brian, of Jesus as Lord. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that every, the all, Yes, I think in this instance, one day does mean all people, though, recognize that Jesus was the Son of God. But more importantly, in our passage, it's talking about more evidence of Jews and Gentiles together. More evidence of the the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled. And so then Jesus starts to get back into these these things about the light, which I'm going to come back to later for, for sake of time. I want to move on. But he starts to talk about some of the light again. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in that. Maybe quickly, what what does that even mean? The idea that C.S. Lewis said, I don't just see the light, capital L, as Jesus, but he's the one by which I see everything else. Does the light, capital L, inform everything that you do? If you think about an old school lunch tray, and you've got the, you know, the little section that's got the main course and then a side here and a side here and a little dessert and this and that. Like, is Jesus just one part of that in your life? Maybe he's the biggest one, as he should be. But what Lewis is saying and what John is saying, what Jesus is saying is that, no, Jesus should be the whole tray. Everything in our lives should rest on him. He is not just the one whom we see as the light, but he is the one by whom we see all else in our lives. So there's all of that, and then we get to Isaiah in verse 36, 37. Go down a little bit there, Brian. We get to just some really hard stuff in Isaiah, and, and there's a lot here, and I, I just I didn't feel like I could really skip any of this, because, again, it ties everything together. So we're going to keep jumping into some, some other stuff as we jump into Isaiah and some of the quotes here. So keep, keep hanging with me. When Jesus, right in the middle there, said these things, he departed, he hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, here's some of the people's response. They still did not believe in him. Keep going. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. They're loving their lives here, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So in many ways, up to this point in this passage, it's like, okay, hard stuff, life and death, but like, all right, Jesus, we can trust you. Let's go, let's go for it. And then he throws out this Isaiah-type stuff. That's just really hard, and there's a lot of mystery here. One of the questions that first came up for me was like, like, I know this is, go back, go back up, one or two, Brian, to, yeah, just the one right before that. I guess it's verse 40, 41. Yeah, verse 40 there. Like, I know this wasn't news that Jesus was telling. This was old, old prophecy from centuries before. But I just was like, Lord, why would it have been a problem if they would have turned around with their heart and seen with their eyes and understood? Like, isn't that, kind of, isn't that repentance? Like, isn't that what you want from us, to turn and trust you? Like, why would that have been a problem? And there's a sense that Jesus is trying to, to help them see, and John trying to help them see, to learn from history. But there's also just some really hard mystery here with some of this. And so I thought it would be good to look at Isaiah's calling here. This is a, Isaiah 6. This is a wild scene. As the, the people of God are they're messing around with other gods, lowercase g. They're not trusting Yahweh. They're not following him. They're, they're, they're back and forth much more back than forth. And God is finally like, okay, if you want to chase after these other gods, you want them to be the one that you build your life around, you want them to be your whole lunch tray, I'll let you do it. And you can taste and see that that's not a very good lunch. And so he started, God has, has been prophesying through Isaiah that, hey, like, you guys are going gonna to get kicked out. And I'm going to come back and get you, but you're going to get kicked out. And I'm actually not even going to leave you, but it's not going to be good. And so he's needing someone to tell that message. Not a, very, not a very compelling ad in the newspaper. But this is what happens, and this is how Isaiah uh, recounts his calling. Some wild stuff here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, right? Just the hem of his pants. That's how big God is. If you want to put some spatial, uh, spatial uh, limits on him. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two he covered his face. Two covered his feet. Two he flew. These crazy angelic beings. They called to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook. Things are falling apart because God's physical glory is there in front of Isaiah. Isaiah responds with some repentance. Woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognizes who he is that he should just be totally undone before the Lord. Then one of those angel things flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. There is this sense of the holy reaching out to the unholy and bringing cleansing. Beautiful picture of what Jesus does. And then he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. He had a he had this crazy experience with God, totally transformed his life. And now he's like, all right, I will, I will live sent. Send me to go. And he said, God saying, go to this people and say, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Keep going. He's like, okay, that's not a great, like, Message, so how long am I going to do that? You know, till things kind of like turn around pretty quick? And God said, no, until cities lie in waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain, oh good, okay, there'll be some people left. Nope, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. This is Isaiah's calling. Who wants to sign up for this one? Hey, go, and they're going to totally reject you, and no one's going to listen. And that's what I want you to do. And again, we have the whole story. In many ways, I think we could argue that because Israel was repentant, because they went off in exile, God did all this work hundreds of years later to bring Jesus onto the scene so that they would still reject him, another prophet who came with a, on a suicide mission, dare I say, with fruitless results, that's the seed there. Even that seed has to die so that it could bring life for the rest of it. That's how Isaiah was commissioned. In many ways, we could say that's how Jesus was commissioned, at least up until the resurrection. So, like, that's Isaiah's calling, but it still doesn't really help me with my question of, like, why would it have been a problem? Like, yeah, we see the grand picture over, you know, millennia. Like, that's cool, but, like, why? Why couldn't they have just? Why wouldn't you just let them turn around? Again, there's mystery. God knew that. God foreknew that they wouldn't. That's a whole another level of mystery. They had already rejected the light. They had already turned away from that. There was already this hardening of their heart. Which I think is just worth looking at really quickly. Where the idea of how does God harden someone's heart? Like, isn't that kind of unfair? There is already the element of like, well, we, we really deserve it. Like, we really deserve nothing but judgment from God. Anything we get from God but judgment um, is is anything we yeah anything we get from God but judgment is a gift. Right. That just doesn't sell very well in our in our world today, and that's okay. It's not a it's not a great sell even though it's reality. But I think, let's look quickly at Exodus 4. I told you we are going to jump around all over the place. Exodus 4. So after Abraham, God came to him and said, all right, father of many nations. The nation of Israel starts to grow. There's a, there's a famine in the land. They eventually go to Egypt, where they're saved by one of the other patriarchs of the family, Joseph. Hundreds of years go by. Now they're enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up another leader, another prophet sort to go and, and free his people. And Moses is trying to ask Pharaoh, the, the, the king of the land, to say, hey, let, let God's people go. And Pharaoh's not really all about it. And so God says to Moses, hey, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh, all these miracles, God's kind of displaying his power through Moses. But God says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. how is it that God's messing with hardening people's hearts? Right? Isn't he supposed to soften our hearts? I'm just going to read a couple of the commentaries because I think, I think they just put it better than I do. When Pharaoh, Dr. Tony Evans says this, when Pharaoh repeatedly and willfully hardened his heart against God, the Lord eventually cooperated with Pharaoh and hardened his heart further. If a person persists in pursuing darkness, eventually God will confirm that desire. Note, however, that God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart until Pharaoh first hardened himself. We didn't read that part, but Pharaoh had already hardened himself. When Pharaoh repeatedly refused to listen to God, God told him, in a sense, Burger King, have it your way. He only hardened his heart further in order to use Pharaoh's rebellion for his greater glory. And this is, this is consistent with the judgment of God in Scripture. God is not this like lightning bolt sending down terror on us because we don't do things exactly how... He beckons us, invites us, as a father has compassion on his children, he beckons us to come to him and trust him that life lived his way is best, even when it feels like death. And yet when we go off other ways, like the father and the prodigal son story in Luke 15, he says, okay, you can go. It's just, you're not going to enjoy it. That's going to feel like death. Ultimately so that we would come back. When that father let his prodigal son go, the one, you know, Jesus told the story of a son who said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. I'm going to go live life. When that father let him go, commentator put it this way The father may have known that the son's mood would lead him to a certain type of hell. The father may have also known that it was only when his son experienced this hell that the son would ever want to come back home again. The permitted hardening contained with it, within it almost an invisible, pitying promise. It's hard to see as the father gave permission for the son to go, but that's the only way that I can reconcile God's hardening and his love, that one can lead to the other. Only the experience of hell, only the experience of the hell of hardening will bring some persons back to the heaven of healing. Like I think about as a, as a parent, like, at some point, what, where are our kids going to go? Are they going to walk away from the, the seeds we're trying to sow in their hearts? I've not experienced that yet. Our kids are pretty young. I have to believe there's some in here that have. Right? You want to talk about a, a living hell. I, can't, I, can, I can only imagine what that would be like. And yet, there is, is, is there some hope that they would one day return? I think of just in, just in discipleship in general, trying to lead others, right? maybe in your, your place of work where you're leading others and you're training young, new Uh, young new employees, letting them struggle. Like, that's really hard. At whatever degree of relationship you have, it's really hard to to let people go and make their own choices. That's almost the kind of hardening that is being talked about here, and yet the hope is that it would beckon them to say, yeah, that doesn't taste very good. I'm going to come back and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so in Isaiah, yeah, go go to Isaiah 52. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about how, yeah, God sends his own himself. He talks about in Psalm 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This is about Jesus. He shall be high, lifted up, shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. This is talking about Jesus on the cross. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. He didn't even look human So shall he sprinkle many nations, Jews and Gentiles. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. At the end of the day, any understanding we have of Jesus as Lord and Savior for us is because God has opened our eyes and has not hardened our hearts. Praise God for his grace that he would even give us that opportunity. To keep going in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. The Father, talking about the Father and the Son. At the end of the day, any hardening that He does, any lack of understanding that we have, ultimately it was His own will to crush His own Son. Like this, and this is, this is the ultimate glory. The ultimate glorification that Jesus had was on the cross. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. There's a hint of some fruit coming there. He shall prolong his days. Keep going. jump down to the next one Brian I want to hit 12 there therefore I will divide him a portion with the many he shall divide the poor spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors there's a sense that again Jesus gave his he, he chose death he did not love his life enough to hang on to it but he chose death and gave it up for us by bearing our sin could you imagine after all of that Go back to John 12 to 43. After all of that, and wrestling through believing who Jesus is, that then we would land and make the same mistake as these here, who for fear of the Pharisees didn't confess it, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I don't know why you may love glory from man more than God in my own life. Probably because glory from God sometimes feels like death. It's a little less tangible. This is a regular thing that I confess and pray for like like objectively glory from God, honor from God, favor from God. Like that is objectively worth infinitely more than glory from man. So it's not an objective truth we're dealing with here. It's a sub, it's a subjective thing. What do I value more? What is it that I would rather have in my life? Is it glory from God? Is it is it crucifixion that will one day lead to resurrection? Or is it this some kind of tangible plaque I can hang on my wall figuratively or literally? And so John, as he's writing this and he's recounting this story, there's this sense of him saying to believers who maybe are wrestling with this very thing, literally their lives in the balance in the Roman Empire of the first century, and saying, guys, don't make the same mistake. Don't put Jesus back on the cross. Don't love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Keep believing and keep living sent. And so that brings us to the finale and the summary here of John 12. Go to 44 to the end of this chapter, the end of Act 1 in John. Let me read this and make a few comments and, and as we move towards the close here. Jesus cried out. This is such a summary of the whole book so far. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. He's talking about the Father. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He's John chapter 1, John chapter 3, he's re- recounting all of this, summarizing it, Jesus says. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. What beautiful dependence he models here, submitting to the Father. The Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say, what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. He's modeling dependence. He's recognizing three times he calls the Father the one who sent him. And this is really the summary of this whole, this whole Act 1. And this passage we've looked at today, Frederick Buechner, i uh, quotes quote someone else here, C.K. Barrett, says this, the central point is the complete obedience of Jesus to the Father. This theme, stressed again and again, alone, makes possible the revealing of the glory of God that takes place in His ministry. The central point is the complete obedience. Jesus recognizes He's walking towards a a fruitless ministry until the resurrection. Recognizing what's going to happen, He engages it fully as a human. And then He commissions us to go and bear fruit. To live as sent ones, even if it takes a while. For the nation of Israel, it took thousands of years, we could say. All the way back from that burning stump. But Jesus trusted his father perfectly, obedient to the point of death on a cross, as the one who sent him to save the world. So as I close, I wanna I wanna read an excerpt from a book by Philip Yancey. I read this book maybe ten years ago. It's called What Good Is God? And he just journeys around to a handful of different really, really hard places and events. And, and he had given a talk to uh, 9-11 survivors and the underground church in different places and um, all, all kinds of different stuff. And this, this excerpt has stuck with me. It's probably the one thing I often think about when I, when I think of this book, even 10 years later. I actually read part of this in our uh, evangelism discipleship course. What was that? Social 202, I think, was what that was. Um, that Rachel and I led, I read part of this. And it's, it's two pages in this book, so it's a little long, but I just don't think I'm going to do better justice than the author here, uh, the, the authorist, if you will. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just going to read it, and I think it just you'll, you'll see the point at the end. I think it just encapsulates so much of what we talked about. So Philip Yancey is writing about this. This is a story that happened in Afghanistan in the 1970s, back before Russian occupation or the Taliban regime. And here's what he writes about ministry and fruit and believing in jesus and living as sent ones he writes a friend of mine named len organized a musical team of young people to tour countries in the middle east with some trepidation he also accepted an invitation to extend the trip to afghanistan for a concert in downtown kabul len made the teenagers write out exactly what they would say subject to his approval this is a strict muslim government he warned them if you say the wrong thing you could end up in prison and at the same time jeopardize every christian who lives in this country Memorize these words and don't dare stray from them when you perform. The teenagers listened wide-eyed as he described the ominous consequence of a slight misstep. In a warm-up, the team gave an abbreviated program at a UN-sponsored school, then a restaurant singing folk tunes and songs about God's love. The night of the official concert in Kabul, almost a thousand Afghans filled the hall and spilled outside the open doors to listen. All went well, until one teenager on the team put down his guitar and started improvising. I'd like to tell you about my best friend, a man named Jesus, and the difference he has made in my life. From the side of the stage, Len motioned wildly for him to stop, drawing his finger across his neck. Ignoring him, the teenager proceeded to give a detailed account of how God had transformed his life. Gotta love the zeal of teenagers sometimes. I was practically beside myself, Len told me. I knew the consequences, and I sat with my head in my hands, waiting for the sword to drop. Instead, the most amazing thing happened. The Minister of Cultural Affairs for Afghanistan stood and walked to the stage to respond. We have seen many American young people come through this country, he said. Most of them come for drugs and most look like hippies. Again, this was the 70s, so he's being literal. Uh, We have not seen nor heard from young people like you. God's love is a message my country needs. How thrilled I am to hear you. You're a prototype for the youth of Afghanistan to follow in the future. I'd like to invite you to expand your tour so that you visit every college and faculty and give this same message on Kabul radio. I will make it happen. Len was dumbfounded. That night, he gathered the musical group together. Did you hear what that man said? We're changing our tickets, of course, and he wants you to give the same message, so you better not change a word. <laughs> Over the next few days, the musical team held other performances, and after each event, Afghan young people crowded around with questions. Tell me more about this Jesus. We know of him through the Quran, but you speak of a personal relationship with God. How does your faith change you? Some asked to pray with the teenagers. Nothing like it had ever happened in Afghanistan. On the last day after a triumphant tour, the teenagers met Dr. J. Christie Wilson, a revered figure in Afghanistan. Born of missionary parents in Iran, earned a degree from Princeton University and a PhD from University of Edinburgh, Scotland. He then spent 22 years in Afghanistan as principal of a government high school, teaching English to crown prince and Afghan diplomats. He also led the Community Christian Church Wilson drove the teenagers to an unusual tourist site, the only cemetery in Afghanistan where infidels could be buried. He walked to the first ancient gravestone, pitted with age. Pointing to it, he said, This man worked here 30 years and translated the Bible into the Afghan language. Not a single convert. And in this grave next to him lies the man who replaced him, along with his children, who died here. He told for 25 years and baptized the first Afghan Christian. As they strolled among the gravestones, he recounted the stories of early missionaries and their fates. At the end of the row, he stopped, turned, and looked the teenager straight in the eye. For 30 years, one man moved rocks. That's all he did. He moved rocks. Then came his replacement, who did nothing but dig furrows. Then came another, who planted seeds, and another who watered. And now you kids, you kids are bringing in the harvest. It was one of the greatest moments of my life, Len recalls. I watched their faces as it suddenly dawned on these exuberant American teenagers that the amazing spiritual awakening they had witnessed was but the last step in a long line of faithful service stretching back over many decades. These young men and women were willing, I think literally, to give up their lives to do what they did, hate their own lives, Could we say? Because they believed in Jesus. At one point, they believed Him for the first time and then for a thousand times thereafter, they chose to believe in and follow Him on that path of death to life as sent ones. Ultimately, to a fruitful eternity. And the beckoning from John here is that we would believe and do the same. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for Your Word. Jesus, thanks that you did not love your life to the point that you chose to keep it, Lord, but you lost it for our sake. You gave it up for our sake to draw all people to yourself. Lord, when we, uh, yeah, when we sit and it feels like we're that kernel of wheat that's being pushed deeper into the ground, and it feels like death. Uh, Lord, would you help us find other seeds around us that we, we might know we're not going through it alone, but would you give us hope of life that would come, God, would we keep clinging to you, knowing that you have walked that same path, Jesus? God, help us see the pearls that we try to hang on to. Lord, help us see the things that we cling to. Help us see the ways that we love glory from man more than glory from you. God, reveal that in our hearts even right now as we pause before this table. And God, would you, would you free our hands, pry our fingers open, God, that we would cling to you and then be sent out to live recognizing here and now that you are Lord of heaven and earth. Thanks for that, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So uh, th- this table here before us is, is another real practical way, in a sense, to live out these rhythms of death and life. We come to this table where we have bread and juice. Gluten-free is in the middle here. Um, bread and juice to, to symbolize the death that Jesus gave for us, a giving up of his own life so that we might take and receive but in so doing that, there is a, there is a sense of, of dying. And so I would encourage you even now just to take a few minutes to consider what, is, what are the things you need to respond to? How is God coming to you in this moment? And then bring those things and lay them down here before Jesus and, and walk away with a little bit more of a taste of life. So if you're a follower of Christ, this place is, table is for you. If you're not, we just would ask you to consider what, you, what you've heard. Or is today the day to, to bow the knee before the one... Uh, who has been sent for us. Come when you're ready.